your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42. Go to the Psalms and start working to the right. Isaiah 42. Let's hear God's word. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, do now what only you can do. Take your word, plant it deep within our hearts. Open our eyes and give us eyes to see. Shine brightly the light of Christ on our hearts that we might understand and respond in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this year for our season of Advent, which begins today, we are going to be looking at the servant songs found in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet sent by God to the nation of Israel. He came during the time when the Assyrians were dominating that part of the world. And while he spoke of judgment and hope in that context, his message was really aimed toward the Babylonian exile that would happen sometime later. And so his words really written down really served as encouragement for those who were the remnant that would become the remnant in exile in Babylon. These would be words that they would look to. Yet some of the deepest encouragement is found in these four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. The most well-known of these is Isaiah 53, one that we're probably all most familiar with, that of the suffering servant. We looked at that a little bit last week as kind of a precursor for this. But each one of these songs is pointing forward, much further forward than the exile or the return for the remnant from Babylon to Israel. Isaiah would speak of a deliverer in a sense, King Cyrus. He named him, foretold that this would be the name of the king who would uh, be used by God to bring this remnant out of uh, Babylon. This Persian king is the one who would make this happen to return. And yet the servant is someone who is far greater. The servant is not King Cyrus 
And as we'll see, the servant is not even the nation of Israel. The servant has a greater work to do, and he himself is greater. He would not only be greater, but he would bring true justice and deliverance beyond this temporary restoration. He would bring justice not only to Israel, but to the nations, to the ends of the earth, to the far-reaching lands, the coastlands, the islands is the language that Isaiah uses here. And this would be done by his taking away the sins of God's people, thus achieving the ultimate victory over sin and all its effects. Advent is a season of anticipation. We look back to look forward. We look back and consider the anticipation of those who awaited the coming Messiah. And we also consider our own anticipation as we await his second advent, his return in glory. This first servant song that we'll look at today in Isaiah 42 shows us some of who the servant is and what his work would be. In the preceding words in chapter 41, Isaiah spoke of the deadness of idols, that the world was in darkness looking for hope in all the wrong places. And he summarizes uh, all that he said at the very end of chapter 41. These are the preceding words to our passage today. He said, behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. And it is in this context that then breaks forth, behold, my servant. A context quite similar to our own day, a day of people living and walking in darkness, looking for hope in all the wrong places, whether it be people or systems or other entities in which people seek hope. They are likewise a delusion, hopeless and bring no true help. Therefore, you and I can this morning rejoice in this announcement. Behold, my servant. That's how the message begins. God speaks through his prophet in verse one. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. I mentioned that uh, in the book of Isaiah, the, the, the language servant or the servant of Israel is applied to the nation of Israel until we get to the servant songs. When we come to the servant songs, the language changes, the descriptions change, and we can begin to see a narrowing down of a speaking of of one particular person. Even the language begins to move to the singular. Thus, the, the, the words that modify in the Hebrew, this word for servant, are in the singular. I'm not sure if we're, if I'm gonna have to cut off here or, um, I think we're good. Okay. Clearly, The prophet is calling our attention to see one, a unique person who would come upon whom the father's favor rests and the power of the spirit indwells. Matthew is going to later explain. We're not quite there yet, but when we get to chapter 12, we'll see this, that this indeed is speaking of Jesus. So this is not just an assumption or a guess, but Matthew confirms for us that these words were written to foretell of Jesus. In the scriptures, we never see the word Trinity, and yet we see the idea, the concept of Trinity clearly taught. And one example is found right here in Isaiah 42, where we clearly see the Father, Son, and Spirit at work. First of all, outside space and time, covenanting together, planning together to accomplish redemption, and then inside space and time, carrying out the the mission, the covenant of redemption. This is the covenant that we refer to that was made in eternity past among the members of the Trinity to accomplish our redemption. It is the great mystery referred to in our election in Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world. It is the great mystery unfolded in our redemption, the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. It is the great mystery revealed through the apostles and the prophets to all the saints. The stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Colossians 1, 25 and 26. Ours is this great mystery. This is our great treasure that the covenantal triune God uh, has planned and accomplished our redemption through the work of the Lamb. The Lamb is the servant who was sent, who is upheld by the Father, chosen in the covenant of love and delight, and empowered by the Spirit to bring forth justice to all nations. We've seen this unfold in our study of Matthew. As we begin with the incarnation through his baptism, through his temptation, now in his teaching and healing ministry, we see the Spirit empowering the servant to accomplish this very mission. The son receives the title and the honor of servant demonstrated in his willingness to come as the covenant deliverer described in Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And, of course, we see the Spirit's work from incarnation to resurrection and ascension. And now, in our day, the Spirit is at work in us, through us, the body of Christ, to bring this declaration of the accomplished mission of redemption, our joy, our delight, to make disciples of all nations, tribes, and tongues. Next, we note in verses 2 to 4 what the servant is like. Isaiah says he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. I think this description is remarkable, particularly when we think of leadership in our own day and how leadership is kind of personified or described among many who are called leaders or brand influencers or people who make an impact or so forth. How many people who fall into such categories could fit a description like this or would fit a description like this? It's the really the opposite of our ideal in contemporary leadership. We often expect or tolerate leaders to speak loudly, even brashly. We can expect or tolerate them to step on people on the way up the ladder just because that's the way it is. We make excuses for them when they snuff out those who aren't as mighty, as well-spoken, or as charismatic. And we don't push back when they have true character flaws that foster injustice or oppression, but often try and explain it away. And I'm not talking about in the world. All of that could describe the church today in America, that this unfortunately describes many leaders within the church. Yet the servant comes, Isaiah tells us, as the very opposite of the worldly standard. First of all, he is a servant. He lays down his life for others. He is the first to grab the broom, so to speak. He enters the mess He cleans it up. He makes things right. He stoops down. He lifts up. 
Second, his voice isn't bombastic or overpowering. He's no clanging cymbal. And he will not, will not, is emphatic, break a bruised reed or smother a faintly burning wick. He cares for the lowest of the lows. We saw last week in Matthew 8. He heals the outcasts, the second-class citizens, those whom the Jews refer to as pigs. And it says he will bring forth justice. Not that he is just only always just and fair, but he will actually accomplish justice in this sin-wrecked world. He will overcome sin and death and bring forth righteousness, his law in action. And he will grant this righteousness to all who fall on him in faith, granting his people mercy. So to this servant then, who came to give his life as a ransom for many, we who are broken and wrecked by the fall can now come and cast all our cares upon him because we know that he cares for us. Paul expresses the greatness of his work in bringing forth the mystery of ages past, this covenant of redemption, so that we might be comforted in assurance. Colossians 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To the Corinthians, Paul explained how the preaching of the gospel emulates the servant. He said, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is how the message of the gospel is so countercultural in our own day. Even in modern Christianity, when you look at mainstream preaching, which focuses on man-made power and man-made wisdom, instead we declare Christ crucified, not with lofty speech, but in weakness, fear, and reverence for the one who has saved us from the wrath we deserved. Yet we see in verse 4 that the servant is not weak. He is the mighty one. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. He put on weakness in human flesh. He took it on and he labored as a human, but he himself is not weak. We are weak. We are easily discouraged, yet he is ever strong. And this is why he told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And this is the glory of the gospel. Not that we are great or mighty, but that we can boast in our weakness, boast in our unworthiness, that his power might be glorified. So that then even in our hardships and our struggles, even among insults and persecution, we can declare that in the servant, in Christ Jesus, we are strong. And of course, we can continue to give thanks for his unending power that he grants to us, that he will complete the work of redemption. Even when we don't have eyes to see it, even when our life clouds the future and we wonder what the future holds, we can be assured that he will bring to completion this work. And not only in our lives, but to the ends of the earth, to the furthest places on the planet.
In verses 5 to 9, we see the character of the covenant-keeping God and the execution of the covenant mission carried out by the servant. Here, the father is speaking to the son as the servant who would come in the flesh as a man. The Lord, Yahweh, affirms his character as the source of all creation, not only in making all things, but giving life and upholding all things. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. The covenant Lord and sovereign creator of heaven and earth declares his glory over all things, especially over idols. You know, this was the real problem. As I mentioned, Isaiah had just been addressing this. We don't use this language so often today, but the heart problem is the same thing. Where we look for hope, where we look for comfort, where we look for security is no different. Father then says to the servant in verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will keep, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. In commenting on this verse, Derek Thomas writes, the commission which took place before the foundation of the world is highlighted throughout the unfolding centuries of the Old Testament period. Jesus is to be God's covenant for the people, a light for the Gentiles. The promise of God revealed in the Garden of Eden and then through Abraham, Moses, and David was of a Savior, one who says, I am the light of the world. In fact, this promise extends further back than the Garden of Eden. In verse 6, the commission by God to the servant seems to take place before the world even began. And this is because the triune will and plan of redemption was no plan B. God did not look down at the garden and go, whoops, God is not wringing his hands in worry and wondering what he will do. This was plan A from the very beginning, before the world was made to redeem a people for himself. It is the great mystery revealed in the first advent when the servant came born as a baby to walk this earth and to lay down his life to ultimately save his people from their sins. It's noteworthy in verse 6 that the singular version of servant is used four times. And this is to make clear that the declaration being made here is not being addressed to the nation of Israel as Isaiah has been using it throughout his book so far, but to one person, to true Israel, Jesus the Messiah. Here in verse 6, he is called the covenant itself signifying what he would later declare at the institution of his supper. Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then we see also that the plan extends beyond the nation of Israel. It extends to the nations around the world, to the Gentiles, that is to all peoples, that you and I have been enfolded into the promises given to Abraham. We read in Galatians 3, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So now you and I are called children, children of the Most High because of the servant, Jesus the Messiah. This would be accomplished through the pronouncement of the gospel which we read of in verse 7, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This is my story. This is your story if you are trusting in Christ Jesus, that we were not wise or righteous, that God set his favor upon us. No, it was while we were his enemies, like sheep gone astray, seeking our own way, 
searching, looking for, for help in all the wrong places, that he sought us and brought us back in redemption. He opened our eyes. He lifted us up out of that dungeon of death and pit of despair. He breathed his life upon us, giving us new and everlasting life in the son, the servant who came to die. And so as we celebrate Advent this year and every year, it marks the reality of our own life story. We who were far off have been brought near. That we who were dead in our trespasses and sins have been made alive. That we who were in darkness without hope have been restored, made God's children through the work of the servant. In verses 8 and 9, we see the crowning words of God's glory in the announcement of the gospel. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. You see, the Lord is jealous for his own glory. For anyone else to say such a thing would be troubling. It may even be troubling for us when we first see this. How does the Lord say this and, and, and in a sense not be sinfully proud? Well, for the Lord to say anything other than this would be wrong, would be troubling. It's because of who he is. He is God Almighty, the Holy One. He is the sovereign creator and ruler of all. He is perfect in love and generous in mercy. His majesty knows no comparison. There's nothing or no one who is greater than him. Therefore, he must be jealous for his own glory. And he will not share his praise with an idol or any worthless thing. He alone is God over all. And this glory of his shines most brightly in the work of redemption, which he now foretells through the prophet new things. He says, before they spring forth, that new things are coming, he announces, that the old things have passed away and now these new things are beginning to happen. God's unfolding plan of redemption. Before the heavens and the earth were created, he instituted this plan to save his people. This is how Paul closes out his letter to the Romans. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. He is speaking here of that long ago, ages past, kept hidden for long time, mystery plan of redemption. After the fall, God announces to Adam and Eve, speaking to the serpent, of course, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The seed would come. He went on to promise Noah that creation would continue. Nothing would stop it so that the seed might come, born of a woman, according to the promise. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease, he promised to Noah. To Abraham, he promised, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed and on through the patriarchs and to Moses and to David and through the prophets, his promises unfolded. And now these former things have come to pass. He announces the new things to come 
in the coming of the servant. It is Jesus. That's the servant. Our savior, servant, our king, servant, our mediator, servant, who has come that we celebrate this in every season of Advent. We sing that he has come to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Every day, you and I witness evidences of the curse and how far it is spread. We see it in the decay in our world, both physically and spiritually. We witness the corrupting power of sin in politics and corporations and institutions. But most closely, we witness it in our own lives and families. We hear it in the news of illness and death. We witness it in the crumbling of relationships. We see it in the rebellion of those that we love most. And we know it especially in the inward struggles with our own sin. Yet we do not despair. As we read and hear the words of Isaiah, Behold my servant. That the servant has come to redeem us from our sins is our hope. The servant has come to heal all our diseases and one day make us whole. The servant has come to make us children of the Most High. That we will be forever loved with our God, safe and secure. This prophet's words foretold a savior, Emmanuel, our light. Royal blood, his kingly mantle, yet in kindness came to show. Human flesh in God's hands dealt death its final fatal blow. Let's pray. Father, would you cause us to see the greatness of your plan and the glory of the servant and the beauty of our redemption that we might have hope. Lord, there is still great mystery left. Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts for you are so much higher than we are. Your glory is beyond our comparison. But yet we see and hear and know from your word that you are good. And we confess that we trust you. We thank you that you have sent the one to come. The new things that were unfolding long from long ago to accomplish this work that we could not do for ourselves. We thank you today for Jesus who was born to live, but ultimately to die for us. And so we give you thanks that we may now walk in hope, in victory and in assurance that we will be with you forever. Would you make our hearts glad in this today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn. It's in our supplemental hymnal. It's number 18.